Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 35. Verses 1 through 6. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees, to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him, and he healed him, and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Burkett notes, Several particulars are here worthy of our observation and imitation. Note 1. The freedom of our Lord's conversation with men. He delighted in human society and was of sociable temper. We do not find that whenever he was invited to dinner, he disdained to go, not so much for the pleasure of eating as for the opportunity of conversing and doing good. Note 2. The house he goes into and is entertained in, one of the chief Pharisees, who were some of his chiefest enemies, a great instance of our Lord's humanity, humility, and self-denial, in that he refused not the conversation of those whom he knew did not affect him teaching us to love our enemies and not to shun conversing with them, that thereby we may gain an opportunity of being reconciled to them. Note 3. The day when our Savior dined publicly at the Pharisee's house among the lawyers and Pharisees. It was on the Sabbath day. Learn hence that it is not simply unlawful for us to entertain our friends and neighbors with a plentiful meal on the Lord's day. It must be acknowledged that feasting upon any day is one of those lawful things which is difficultly managed without sin, but more especially upon that day that it did not unfit us for the duties of the Sabbath. However, our Lord's example in going to a public dinner amongst lawyers and Pharisees evidently shows the lawfulness of feasting on that day, provided we use the same moderation in eating and drinking that he did and improve the opportunity as a season for doing good, as he taught us by his example. Note 4. How contrary to all the laws of behavior, the decency of conversation, and the rules of hospitality, the Pharisees watch him, making their table a snare to catch him, hoping they might hear something from him or see something in him for which they might accuse him. He entered into the house of the Pharisee to eat bread, and they watched him. Note 5. Our Savior chose the Sabbath day as the fittest season to work his miraculous cures in. In the Pharisee's house, he heals a man who had the dropsy on the Sabbath day. Christ would not forbear doing good, nor omit any opportunity of helping and healing the distressed, though he knew his enemies, the Pharisees, would carp and cavail at him, calumniate and reproach him for it, it being the constant guise of hypocrites, to prefer ceremonial and ritual observations before necessary and moral duties. Note 6. How our Savior defends the lawfulness of his act in healing the diseased man from their own act in helping a beast out of a pit on the Sabbath day, as if Christ had said, Is it lawful for you on the Sabbath day to help a beast? And is it sinful for me to heal a man? Note lastly, how the reason and force of our Savior's argument silenced the Pharisees, convincing them, no doubt, but we read nothing of their conversion. The obstinate and malicious are much harder to be wrought upon than the ignorant and scandalous. It is easier to silence such men than to satisfy them, to stop their mouths than to remove their prejudices. For obstinacy will hold the conclusion though reason cannot maintain the premises. They could not answer him again to those things.
verses 7 through 11. And he put forth a parable to those who were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying to them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and he come by and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art biddest, go and sit in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Burkett notes, It was observed before that our blessed Savior dined publicly on the Sabbath day with several Pharisees and lawyers. That which is here worthy of our notice is this, how holy and suitable our Lord's discourse was to the solemnity of that day. May it be a matter of our imitation. It is not unlawful for friends to dine together on the Lord's day, provided their discourse be suitable to the day, such as our Lord's here, for observing how the company then at the table did affect precedency and taking place one of another. He that before their eyes had cured a man of a bodily dropsy attempts to cure the person that dined with him of a timpany of pride. Where note that it is not the taking, but the effecting of the highest places and utmost rooms that our Savior condemns. There may and ought to be a precedency among persons. It is according to the will of God that honor be given to whom honor is due, and that the most honorable person should sit in the most honorable places. For grace gives a man no exterior preference. It makes a man glorious indeed, but it is glorious within. Note farther, the way and course, the method and means which our Savior directs persons to, in order to their attaining real honor, both from God and men, namely, by being little in our own eyes, and, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. As God will abase, and men will despise the proud and haughty, so God will exalt, and men will honor the humble person. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Verses 12 through 14. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Burkett notes, Observe here that it is not an absolute denial of calling brethren and kinfolk and rich neighbors, but Christ forbids the bidding of them alone and requires that the poor be refreshed at or from our table. For when the rich feast one another and let the poor fast and pine, this is very sinful. Accordingly, our Savior, observing how the Pharisee that bade him to dinner invited only the rich, overlooking and neglecting the poor, he exhorts him and the company that whenever they make entertainments for the time to come, they should not only invite their rich neighbors and friends, who can and will invite them again, but remember the poor. Note here, one, that civil courtesies and hospitable entertainments of kindred and friends for maintaining and preserving love and concord is not only lawful, but an expedient and necessary duty. Use hospitality one to another, says St. Peter, without grudging. Two, 
though it be not unlawful to invite and feast the rich, yet it is most acceptable to God when we feed and refresh the poor. When thou makest a feast, call rather the poor, and thou shalt be blessed. We must prefer the duties of Christian charity before the acts of common civility. Blessed are those feastmakers who make the bowels of the hungry to bless them. 3. That God oftentimes rewards our liberality to the poor very signally in this life. But if it be deferred, we shall not fail to receive it at the resurrection of the just. The poor cannot recompense thee, but thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Verses 15 through 24. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it and I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that the servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maim and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Burkett notes, One of them that sat at meat with our Savior in this Pharisee's house, hearing Christ speak of being recompensed at the resurrection of the just, repeated that known saying among the rabbis, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. That is, who shall be partakers of the joys of heaven. Hereupon Christ utters the parable of the marriage supper, recorded here by Luke, with small variation from what was delivered by St. Matthew. Chapter 22. The first intention of our Savior in that parable seems to be this, to set forth that gracious offer of mercy and salvation which was made by the preaching of the gospel unto the Jews and to declare God's purpose of receiving the Gentiles into the fold of Christ, upon the Jews despising and rejecting that inestimable favor. But besides this, it has an aspect upon us Christians who have embraced the doctrine of the gospel. Here note, one, that the gospel, for its freeness and fullness, for its variety and delicacies, is like a marriage supper. For one, it doth create the same religion between Christ and believers that marriage doth between husband and wife. 2. It entitles to the same privileges that a conjugal relation doth, to the same endearing love and tenderness, to the same care, protection, to the same honor, to the same happiness. 3. It obliges to the like duties, namely unspotted love and fidelity, cheerful obedience to his commands, reverence to his person, submission to his authority. 4. It produceth the same effects. As the effects of marriage is increase of children, so the fruit of the gospel is bringing many sons to God. Note, too, that gospel invitations are mightily disesteemed, and they made light of the invitation and offered frivolous excuses for their refusal of it. 
Note 3. That the preference which the world has in men's esteem is a great cause of gospel contempt. One had purchased a piece of ground, another had brought five yoke of oxen. Note 4. The deplorable sadness of their condition who refused, upon any pretense whatever, to comply with the gospel tender of reconciliation and mercy. The king was wroth, pronounced them unworthy of his favor, and resolved that they should not taste of his supper, but sends forth his servants to invite others to his supper. Note 5. The notion under which the Gentiles are set forth unto us. Such were in lanes, streets, and highways. That is, a rude, rustic, and barbarous people, whom the Jews despised, yea, whom they held accursed. Yet even these are called and accepted, while the Jews, the first intended guests, are excluded by means of their own contempt. Note lastly, the means used to bring in the Gentiles to the Gospel Supper. Go and compel them to come in, not by violence, but persuasion, by argumentation, not compulsion. The plain and persuasive, the powerful and efficacious preaching of the word, with the motions and influence of the Holy Spirit, are the compulsions here intended, not external force, not temporal punishment, not outward violence. Says Tertullian, no man ought by force and violence to be compelled to the profession of the true faith. Observe here how vainly these words are brought to prove that men may be compelled by the secular arm to embrace the Christian faith. This appears, one, from the nature of a banquet, to which none are compelled by force, but by persuasion only. Two, from the scope of the parable, which respects the calling of the Gentiles, who believed by the great power of God. Verses 25 through 27. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, Yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Burkett notes, Our Savior by these expressions doth not condemn natural love and affection, either to our relations or to our own lives, but only relegates and directs it, showing that our first and chief love ought to be bestowed upon himself, we may have and ought to cherish tender and relenting affections towards our near and dear relations. But then the consideration of Christ's truth and religion must take place of these. Yes, of life itself. And when they stand in competition with these, we are to regard them no more than as if they were objects of our hatred. Learn hence, one, that no man can be a sincere disciple of Christ who gives any relation or outward enjoyment a preference to Christ in his heart and affections. Christ must be loved above all, or we love him not at all. Less love he accounts and calls hatred. That which we can leave for Christ, we hate in comparison of that love which we bear to Christ. It is both impious and impossible to hate father and mother and ourselves absolutely. It must then be understood comparatively only. What we love less, we are comparatively said to hate. Learn, too, that all the disciples of Christ must be ready and willing, whenever called to it, to quit all their temporal interests and enjoyments, even life itself, and submit to any temporal inconveniences, even death itself, all this willingly and cheerfully, rather than disown their relation to Christ and quit the profession of his holy religion. Upon easier terms than these can none of us be the disciples of Jesus. Verses 28-33 
For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that come against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsake not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, by these two parables, advises all of his followers to sit down and consider, to weigh well and cast up beforehand what it is like to cost them to go through with their profession of religion. This, he tells us, common prudence will direct men to do in other cases, particularly when they either go to build or fight, as a man that intends to build will consult whether he is able to defray the charges, and a king that go forth to war will consider what strength he has to make opposition. In like manner, should persons engaged in religion, not rashly, but advisedly, with consideration and judgment, it is good to remember the issue of action before we act, before we engage in spiritual combat, to consider the difficulty of the battle. What proud leviathans we have to conflict with, what mighty giants to contend and strive against, even the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then we must take great care that our deliberation and consideration of difficulties and dangers may not deter us from, but work in us, a steady resolution for the combat, looking up to Christ for his auxiliary aid and strength to render us victorious, who though of ourselves we can do nothing, yet may do all things through Christ that strengthens us. Learn from hence that such as take up a profession of Christianity without considering the dangers and difficulties, the trials and troubles, the afflictions and temptations which may accompany it, will never hold out in the spiritual warfare, but either fall in it or run from it. Verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor yet for the dunghill but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Burkett notes, Our Savior here compares his disciples to salt, thereby denoting their usefulness, salt being one of the most useful things in nature, and pointing out also their duty, which is to season themselves and others with sound doctrine. But hypocritical professors are like unsavory salt. They are neither savory in themselves nor serviceable to others. Our Savior compares such Christians as have no savor of piety and goodness upon their spirits to salt, that, having lost its goodness, is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. That is, being of a brackish nature, it is wholly unfit to manure the ground, and will rather occasion barrenness than any fruitfulness or increase. Learn hence that sincere and serious Christians are and will be as the salt of the earth, that is, good and savory in themselves, and endeavoring by exhortation and good example to season others. But hypocritical professors and apostatizing Christians will be cast out and trampled upon as unsavory salt.